listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. Today, we are recording another episode of Discourse, which is the RSP's monthly take on how religion is being discussed in the news media. I'm your host today. I'm Andy Alexander, and we have a star-studded panel joining me here today both of whom are, of course, longtime friends of the RSP and who have appeared on a number of episodes, both regular episodes and frequently at least once a year in a discourse episode. Joining me is Craig Martin and Paul Francois Trimlet. I will let them introduce themselves. Craig, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Craig Martin, I'm a professor at St. Thomas Aquinas College, where I just completed my 15th year there, actually. It's been quite a while. I do method and theory in the study of religion stuff, I guess. I do post-structuralism. I'm currently working on a book on Hegel and Derrida that probably no one will want to read except for me, but I'm writing it for me. <laughs> Great. Uh, and Paul? I'm Paul Francois Tremler. I'm a senior lecturer at the Open University. Um, I've been there almost 13 years. Um, I want to read your book about Hegel and Derrida. I've got similar interests to you. I'm currently working on research projects around disinformation and religion with a colleague in the politics department, or polis, uh, as it's called here at the OU. And I'm also working on a sort of religious slash epistemic literacy project as well, focused on further education colleges, which are sort of situated in between schools and universities. So yeah, lots going on. Cool. Well, thank you both for being here today. It's great to have you joining us here in our virtual recording studio. We, we have several interesting topics that I know we want to discuss today. Maybe Considering the conversation that we're hoping to have, let's start, uh, Craig, with you. Now, you had a few U.S.-based topics that you wanted to discuss, so will you kick us off? Cool. Thanks. So, um, I mean, what I wanted to talk about was uh, a, a news story I saw, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago about a law in Texas that was passed that will apparently permit chaplains to be counselors in public schools, like I'm guessing like secondary schools, middle school, high schools, et cetera. They'll have chaplains who can serve as, as um, um, counselors for students. Um, and I'll, I'll look at that in a minute, but I wanted to, before I look at that, I wanted to briefly mention when I was working on my, my dissertation and my, my first book, I read a lot of John Locke where he's talking about, um, the nature of religion and politics, the appropriate relation. And in his letter concerning toleration, he, as a good liberal, is like, hey, you guys should all be free to do whatever you want as long as you're not harming other people. Um, and he gives the example of like, if, if you and your church are um, uh, sacrificing babies on the altar on Sunday mornings, that's a harm. And that form of religion should not be permitted. But if you're not harming anybody else, go nuts. And he imagined an interlocutor arguing with him. And the interlocutor at one point says, hey, what if there's disagreement between the different groups about what counts as a harm? And he says, well, you know, and he's very matter of fact. As a matter of fact, the people in power get to make those decisions. If there's a question about what counts as harm, the people in power 
get to define it. And so I want to bring that point to this this story of uh, uh, about the well, not the story, but the way that the story has been covered in the news, in particular. There is so much talk about harm in the literature. So let me just look at a couple of the, the news stories and look at the vocabulary and the language they use to talk about this. So this is from the Washington Post. They say, uh, and why to fund and empower religion and more specifically a particular type of Christianity are more plentiful and forceful than they have been in years, right? So they're setting up this narrative where religion's this force that's coming for you. And that's why we need a separation of church and state. So they don't impose their values on everybody else. That would be bad. Um, so there's this force growing that's pushing and trying to push a particular type of Christianity. And in response to this, hey, how can you put chaplains um, in, in charge of these jobs? And a lot of the focus is on the fact that they're just simply not qualified. Um, I believe that the counselors, my wife's a secondary school teacher. I think that the counselors at her school have to have both a bachelor's and a master's degree. Chaplains don't have to have any of that. So one of the objections is like they're not they're literally not qualified to do these jobs that you're asking them to do. And therefore, they might do more harm than good. In addition to the fact that they may use this as an opportunity to push their religion on other people. So the CEO of Americans United for the separation of church and state and her comments on this says religious freedom means that parents, not school officials or state legislatures, have the right to direct their children's religious education. Families should be able to trust that their children will not have a particular religious per perspective forced on them while they are at attending our public schools. This, this bill violates the religious freedom of every student and family in Texas. So here the harm is, we are harming other people by imposing one religion on people who have another religion. The people who defend the bill say things like, look, and this was apparently prompted because um, the Texas can't afford to hire enough people who are qualified. So they're looking for other people to fill these slots. So they're just lowering the standards to save money. Um, and one of the people defending the thing says, well, we have to give schools all the tools. Um, with all that we're experiencing, with mental health problems, others, cr other crises, this is just another tool. So for this guy, right, um, proposing the legislature or on this uh, legislation or on the side of it, he's like, our kids are being harmed already because we have mental health issues, we don't have resources, and we can help them by providing chaplains as help. Don't worry, I won't read too much of this. Uh, one, well, here, I'll end with this, or in, in this, this story, they say, well, some of the people complaining uh, about they, they oppose this bill, they don't want other people forcing their religious beliefs on others. And one of the senators asked the senator supporting it said, should we encourage infiltration in our schools? Meaning, should we encourage infiltration of religion on the students? And the person uh, behind the bill said, here's what I really think. I think it's preposterous that members in here will defend acts of certain inappropriate drag schools in our schools, um, drag shows in our schools and inappropriate mental uh, material in our libraries, and then have the audacity to say that this is a problem. 
right? So for that guy, what what what's the harm? The harm is you, you're having drag shows and you're letting kids read stories about, I guess, queers or something like that, right? Whatever. That's the harm. We are helping children by providing the chaplains. You're harming the children by doing these other things. And, and so I can put this right next to a Texas bill banning um, any kind of uh, health care for trans youth that supports the trans youth transition. Um, and what's the argument against banning that? Well, because they're helping the children. So this is what the, the, the legislator who brought forth this bill. Children in Texas are officially protected um, through this legislation from harmful experimental medical and surgical treatments. So there's unnecessary harms that we are prohibiting. You can shout separation of church and state all you want, but if the, if the people in charge have the power to define what's going to count as harm, they get to determine what counts as harm, and you're going to lose your lawsuit every time until you have more people who have your values in the legislature. So one more example, right? Um, the Texans won because the Texans are conservative. That's how politics works. And this is of interest to me because I don't think harm is particularly all that useful concept in such an abstract way, right? What does harm actually mean? If I, I do this in in front of my students, right? If I asked you all to write down what counts as a harm, would I get different answers or the same answers? And they're like different. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> if the term is that vague, how, how useful is it actually for political work? And it looks like it's useful because it's variable, because people can make it mean whatever they want. It's useful to them. Yeah. Sorry if that sounded like a rant. I got really excited there. No, for a while. no it's fine. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask is is how this is playing out in other states. Um, I've been reading about a lot of stuff going on in Florida, book banning, and uh, and it seems like similar stories unfolding in in different states. I'm just wondering if you've got any comments on that and how this relates to the the Texas situation. I haven't followed the legislation um, proposals closely, but I do know that yeah, there's been other bans on like medical treatment for trans kids in in other states, and I think they passed in some and probably were rejected in others. I don't I don't know the count, but I can tell you that you know if it was likely to pass, it's more likely to pass in places where the people who live in that state think that those kinds of things are harms. You're going to see it in Florida. You're going to see it in Texas. You're going to see it in places like that. But I can't give you any count of, of what what the actual results were. Um, the, the Chronicle for Higher Education um, in the U.S. tracks tracks in the U.S. challenges to DEI, uh, DEI programs in colleges and universities. This is something I've been following where higher education programs have diversity programs attached to them. And these conservatives in places like Texas and Florida are trying to pass laws saying that those need to be removed. Those are harms. Those are that's just a bunch of people telling not racist people that they are racist. And that's not helpful. And in some of the states, they've been very successful because the people who vote for them agree with them that it's a harm. I mean, it's uh, it's a little bit depressing, isn't it? But isn't the ground of, uh, you know, the grounds of the state fairly arbitrary? You know, it is, uh, wasn't Locke kind of right about that, just to play devil's advocate? Wait, what do you, uh, what do you mean? 
in the sense that we have to constantly work at making the grounds upon the you know the, the political grounds upon which we choose uh together to 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 live there, there aren't any given parameters or yeah we have to we have to make those every every generation yeah. so i mean i mean if i understand you correctly i mean what you're suggesting is what counts as a harm is not a fixed thing what counts as a harm changes over time as populations views change and 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 from like a, a gramscian perspective right the groups that won that win are the ones who get to get their common sense be taken as universal right when they can get their common sense to be accepted by others as in the best interests of everyone and thereby they gain a hegemony to use his terms yeah to to, to get people in power to define harm in ways that you want it to be defined, it requires institutional work of spreading propaganda and things like that, which the uh, in Texas and Florida, right, churches do a lot of that work of spreading propaganda to get the population to notice and pay attention to these things and to think about them and to push in some directions rather than others. And we see the same thing on the left, right? Throughout much of the 20th century, so much of African-American and feminist political work was awareness raising, right? Hey, guys, please pay attention. <laughs> to these things that are going on that people are not paying attention to as much to change to change to change public opinion um, throughout much of the 20th century african-american and feminist political work was done through awareness uh consciousness raising right hey all you people out there please pay attention to these things that too few people are paying attention to because you might think some of them are harmful at this point it doesn't appear that enough people in florida and texas think that those kinds of things are appropriate so maybe more consciousness raising or more um, leftist propaganda can swing swing the legislatures in the opposite direction but for now the people in power get to define get to define harm and and the trans youth and their allies are not in power in texas and florida yeah and to your point, Craig, I mean, the same the same laws are being passed elsewhere, right? Similarly, in Alabama, quite recently, they passed a law prohibiting any sort of gender affirming health care for minors in the state of Alabama with a punishment of like, I think it was up to 10 years in prison. And again, they're kind of using that same emphasis on the sort of harm and damage it could do to children who aren't old enough or mature enough to make these decisions, whose brains aren't fully developed, et cetera, right? While sort of obscuring what gender-affirming healthcare is. But yes, I mean, that is the same sort of thing, right? This this also passed in Arkansas in 2021, I think, but also interestingly, and to your point, right? Who gets determined what is harm and what counts as harm? Right. Opponents to this legislation in Alabama say that this kind of legislation could cause lasting and irreparable harm to transgender youth who are unable to receive any sort of gender affirming care or support and have now lost all access to that. And of course, they aren't the ones in power. And with the people in power, one could say that they're doing it in the best interests of children. Right, wanting to protect them from things that are dangerous. But as we know all too well, unfortunately, there are many sources of harm 
that children in the United States face on an extraordinarily regular basis. Guns, right? But the legislation regarding that, but Alabama in March of this year just passed a law saying that there is now no requirement for anyone to have a permit for concealed carry weapons and they aren't required to obtain any sort of permit or undergo any sort of background check to carry a firearm. But rather than saying this is hypocritical, right, we know that the question isn't so much about harm as what the people in power, conservative, white, Protestant, Christian, who want to maintain a certain status quo and perpetuate their own ideology about what and who the U.S. is and what that should look like. But much to Craig's point, right, it's not about harm as something that is useful in identifying things that are harmful, but rather how this rhetoric is used and politicized in specific ways and whose interests that rhetoric serves, because it's not about the thing itself being harmful, right? Instead, it helps to maintain a certain ideology, one that's particularly pervasive in the U.S. South, right? But if we assume that this harm is obvious, then it would be clear, right? We wouldn't have companies and and schools coming up with every other way of helping protect children with with, with things that they can add to their backpack. And sometimes some of them, I think, have some sort of bulletproof component, or they used to before they had to have clear bags, right? The, door jams, et cetera, like active shooter drills are as common as a tornado or fire drill, right? So they're doing anything but the sort of obvious thing, right? And and I say it's obvious, but that's the that's the problem. It's this idea that we're assuming that this actually has to do with protecting children from harm, because that's not really what's at stake here, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to, I'm just it's like, I'm really struggling to imagine some other harms that might be higher on other people's agenda, like their kids being shot in school, or their kids not being able to breathe at school, because there's a lot, you know, giant fires uh, in Canada, and so much of the smoke is, is, you know, moving south of the prevailing winds, turning the sky an apocalyptic orange over New York, for example, it beggars belief in a, in a way that those things aren't regarded or taken more seriously than they are. Uh, uh, and, and these other issues, which affect, for the most part, very small numbers of people are going to self-identify as trans uh, 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 at any point. And, and those that do clearly need support and, and access to the things they need. Forest fires and gun violence think, in schools think, seem to be more pressing. Let me push back. Well, f actually, first, let me say, yeah, in one of the articles that I read, they explicitly said, you know, now that you've passed this chaplain bill, how dare you do it on the one year anniversary of some school shooting, right? They're like, there are school shooters that are harming kids and you're harming kids more by forcing religion on them. Whereas some of the people on the other side said, because of things like school shootings, we need God in the schools, right? So for them, right, because you're taking it for granted that what counts as a harm is obvious. And for them, the best way to prohibit school shootings is to bring God into the schools that, and that the chaplains can help with that. Whether or not their assumptions are warranted by empirical evidence is something 
else altogether, but they have very different ideas of harm. I've been reading a lot of Hegel recently, so I think about everything now in terms of teleology, because it helps me think about what Hegel is saying and to try to make sense of his vocabulary. And I think that we can use it to make sense of the idea of harm, that the Amish communities in America a long time ago famously won the legal right to exempt their children from public school after eighth grade. Everybody else says that's a harm to students because everybody else has a different goal in mind than the Amish, right? The goal for most people is we want our kids to be able to um, grow up, have a certain level of knowledge that allows them to maintain a certain kind of job in a technological society. And the Amish are like, that's not our goal. Our goal is very, very different. So, you know, is that harming Amish children? Well, it depends on what what's the end or the telos at which you're aiming. If you want children who are trans to feel repressed, then some things might be harms and other things not. The, the, the definition of harm could go so many different ways depending on what you want to accomplish. And not everybody wants to accomplish the same thing. Like when you say things like, how can they not see that that's a harm? I wonder if to some extent you want different things than they want. And they are helping their children achieve that goal where you would prefer the children and achieve another goal. And I know that that sounds super relativistic and and believe you me, I'm 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 not on the side of the Republicans in Texas by any means politically, but I can totally understand why they might define harm differently than others. Yeah, I think I can too. Maybe on another an, another occasion we could talk about Brexit and and you know, we we had very different definitions of harms for that as well. That would be a perfect example, right? Because that's, that's central to the language of liberal democracy. You guys should be able to do the, as much as you want by yourself as long as you're not harming everybody else. There are few things more important than determining what counts as a harm in our political systems. Yeah, I mean, in uh, and neoliberalism go, makes it one step further, right? We're just going to take out the state altogether and just let the market decide what, what what value is, what harm is, and that'll be that. I mean, what always gets me is the word unnatural is used, but if you really look at nature, it's pretty weird. Uh, uh, there's a whole lot of different stuff going on. You know, just look at the life, just look at snails or, or, or some creature like that. I mean, you don't need to leave your garden to find creatures that really might defy your expectations of what a binary gendered world might. Yeah, but I mean, that's right. For so-called Western countries, scare quotes for the audio, that is the predominant idea about how that works and challenges to that, especially for conservative parties are largely unwelcome. But, you know, Craig, what you're saying, it, it reminds me of while this didn't happen this month, in February 2023, Nicola Sturgeon, who was the first minister of Scotland, resigned from her position. And because the next general election, I think, is in 2026, and as she was a member of the Scottish National Party, the SNP held an election to find a replacement for Sturgeon as first minister. And at the time, the sort of leading candidate was Kate Forbes, who had also served as the cabinet secretary for finance and the economy. So she kind of, at least at the time, was was at least seemed to be doing well from the little that I heard on the radio. However, in an interview around that time, Forbes came out saying that she believed that marriage was explicitly and exclusively between a man and a woman, her, her religious beliefs, being a member of the Free Church of Scotland. 
and said that while she would not do, while she would not repeal any marriage equality legislation, that she would oppose any trans rights legislation in Scotland, you know, moving forward. And she cited this right as as a matter of of conscience. And interestingly, used the same sort of rhetoric that often is employed by marginalized communities, right? Sort of trying to present Protestant Christians as as a victimized minority in the world. And she wanted to say that, like, of course, like she could not go against her own personal beliefs in this position. And I just happened to hear on the radio, I don't know what station it was on, I was in a car, um, and it was a very brief kind of snippet of an interview. But what was interesting is that there was some support for her, praising her for sticking to her convictions and to her personal beliefs and saying that any sort of liberally minded folks, particularly of the Labour Party, potentially, or some parts of the Scottish National Party, said that to then critique Forbes was 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 a conservative move in itself because they're judging her based on her religious beliefs. Right. And I mean, it was an interesting way of framing it. But as the elected representative of Scotland in the United Kingdom, it would be her duty to represent the interests of the public. Right. But it was it was interesting to see how they had flipped that argument in this instance. I don't think it worked, but they they did try to push that as as if it was as if she was being kind of victimized for her personal beliefs. And interestingly, she tried to align herself with Angela Merkel. Referring to the recent, I think it was 2017, um, legislation legalizing marriage equality in Germany. And despite the, the sort of praise and recognition that Merkel has received in the wake of COVID and accepting refugees in Germany, moving away from nuclear energy, speaking out against Donald Trump, etc. Sticking point for her was that she did not support marriage equality. Again, considered it a matter of conscience. Of course, a slight difference in the scheme of things. And not that this is representative of Merkel's actual stance on this, but at the end of the day, marriage equality was legalized. Merkel has since, or at the time, had come out in support of same-sex couples, adopting children, etc., what the stakes are in that sense for Merkel and what was happening at the time, I don't know the specifics of. But I do think that it's interesting that Forbes chose, of all people, to compare herself to Angela Merkel, right? Um, Merkel is not the first person to make claims about personal belief or conscience in guiding their decisions. But why, of all recent politicians, world leaders, would Forbes try to align herself with Merkel? But a key factor of this discussion is how Forbes is both trying to cite her personal religious beliefs as inseparable from her role as as a politician, as the potential first minister of Scotland. And both Forbes and her supporters tried to frame this as a victimization, a marginalization of Protestant Christianity. I mean, sure, in the U.S., we claim to have a separation of church and state. But that separation is a successful myth in the U.S., but that another can of worms. But this is the United Kingdom, right? We just had the coronation of King Charles III, who is the head of the Church of England. This coronation included very explicitly Protestant Christian components. And these, you know, smaller 
ceremonies within the coronation were carried out by non-Christian political leaders like Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who is Hindu. So trying to frame Protestant Christianity as marginalized, as victimized, particularly in the United Kingdom, is an is a surprising move to make, to be honest. And then to use that narrative of victimization to oppose legislation that would help and support transgender citizens in Scotland is, is quite surprising. And I highlight this in part because while it, it, the rhetoric of this was less focused on the harm or protecting children from harm, what was employed, Greg, back to what you were talking about with John Locke, is this idea of personal belief, of personal conscience, that, at least in the case of Forbes, is the primary factor that determines how she would vote, rather than being a representative of the Scottish people. Running against Forbes was Hamza Yusuf, who ultimately was elected as first minister of Scotland. And when this came out, Yusuf very clearly positioned himself as being on the opposite side of the debate as Forbes and said that though he is a Muslim, his faith was not the foundation or basis for his approach to legislation and would support policy that was in the best interests of the country. So it's interesting to see how this rhetoric is being employed and by whom. So that makes for a very interesting case study. And now there are a variety of other kind of smaller issues you can get into that would be fun to discuss. But it was a very interesting example of how, again, it comes down to who's who's in power and what are what are what's their agenda? What sort of ideologies are they promoting and interested in supporting? And what are they quite explicitly trying to marginalize and trying to eradicate? So it's a slightly different focus of a very similar conversation, but again, so many of the same kind of threads and issues at, at the at the center of of those discourses, right? Anyways, yes, ultimately this did not work in her favor. Forbes has since doubled down on her stance regarding a number of things. So it'll be interesting to see sort of her role in Scottish politics in the future. But while we're thinking about Scotland, and why it's not entirely unrelated, I came across it because I was looking at things about the different political parties here. And for those unfamiliar with Scottish politics, as I mentioned, Hamza Youssef, Nicola Sturgeon, Kate Forbes, they're all members of the Scottish National Party. The other sort of leading parties here are the Scottish Labour Party, the Scottish Conservative Party, Scottish Greens, to name a few. But I came across this because I was just looking up some information about different political parties. Um, at the end of May, in response to AI and ChatGPT, there's a new Glasgow GVT, which is the Scottish AI. It was created by a 28-year-old Glaswegian, David Hewitson. And it's important to note, of course, that Glasgow GPT is both pro-Scottish independence and a supporter of the Celtics. But it has a general disdain for all political parties in Scotland. And interestingly, speaks, types in a, in a sort of Glaswegian accent, Scots slang, but not full-on Scots language. But it was reported to kind of generally dislike all political parties in Scotland. Um, so I thought I would ask it a few questions about the different parties, Scottish National Party, and ultimately kind of 
got to Kate Forbes just because I was already thinking about it at the time. It's not a fan of the Scottish political parties. And I'll, I'll you know, I have a, a few screenshots I'll share from what it was saying. It, it, it's, it's mostly amusing. It's basically just views the parties as worthless to varying degrees, but doesn't like any of them. Generally was, was okay with Kate Forbes until he started pushing on a couple of things. And I asked it specifically about Kate Forbes' stance on different issues, considering her claimed religious beliefs. And interestingly, the Glasgow GPT said that one's personal beliefs are, are you know, their own private matter and not relevant to anything else, basically. But I pushed it a little further, noting that she explicitly said her faith would determine how she would vote on legislation in the future, particularly pertaining to LGBTQ rights. And then it sort of backtracked a little to say that her personal beliefs are, shouldn't be factored in in her role as a representative of the public. And then, of course, that it's the public's duty to elect officials who will represent their interests um, if said officials fail to do so. But I did think it quite interesting that this this rhetoric of personal private belief, something that's, you know, individual, that's separate from society was the automatic response of this particular AI. And I mentioned that mostly because I know that, Paul, you are going to be talking to us about AI and religion. What, what did you come across with the articles that you've been looking at? What I wanted to talk about was artificial intelligence. It's been in the news uh, a lot recently. Some people are, are saying it anticipates an apocalypse of some kind. Other voices suggest that it's just you know, like the internet when it first dawned uh, and became, it just be, it'll just become a mundane background to all our activities and it, it doesn't pose an existential threat to human life. So you've got two very extreme positions on what AI means for us. But one of the questions that AI raises for us is, is other minds. And I also wanted to raise a question before we get into that. I wanted to raise a question about AI and religion. And AI raises several important questions for religion, some of which include, and forgive me because I'm reading right now, creation and the role of God. With advancements in, in artificial intelligence and the potential for creating intelligent machines, questions arise regarding the nature of creation. If humans can create intelligent beings, does this impact religious beliefs about the role of God as the creator? How does the existence of AI impact religious narratives of creation and divine purpose? Consciousness and the soul. AI raises questions about the nature of consciousness and the existence of the soul. If machines can exhibit complex behaviors and seem conscious, it challenges traditional religious notions that consciousness and the soul are unique to humans. How do religious traditions reconcile the teachings on consciousness and the soul with the development of conscious AI? Moral agency and responsibility. As, as AI becomes more autonomous and capable of decision-making, ethical questions arise. If AI systems can make moral judgments, who bears responsibility for their actions? Can AI be held accountable for its decisions, or does the responsibility ultimately fall on human creators? These questions have implications for con religious concepts of moral agency and, and accountability. Human dignity and purpose. The rise of AI raises questions about human dignity and purpose. If AI can perform tasks traditionally associated with human beings, such as creative work or caregiving, what does it mean to be human? Religious perspectives often emphasize human uniqueness and purpose. So how do they adapt to a world where AI can rival or surpass human capabilities? And then there's ethical implications. The development and use of AI raises important ethical concerns, issues like privacy, algorithmic bias, 
job displacement, the potential for AI to be used for harm in military or security situations. Religious traditions have a role in shaping ethical frameworks and can contribute to discussions on the responsible development and use of AI. It's important to note that the impact of AI and religion is a complex and evolving topic. Different traditions and individuals within traditions may have diverse perspectives and responses to these questions, leading to a range of discussions and debates. Now, the reason I read that out is because ChatGPT wrote that after I asked it some questions, uh, and I thought that would be fun yeah. for us to... I mean, I thought that was quite good. Uh, uh, <laughs> And, Are we becoming uh, outdated right in front of our eyes? I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I probably. Um, <laughs> but I like the way it was trying to figure out sort of implications for other kinds of personhood or other kinds of minds. Uh, and it made me think about animals, humans and machines, which are, are frequent things that we th think with in philosophy uh, and social theory. And I thought a nice, a neat contrast is between Descartes and Donna Haraway. So again, I'm reading, but these are actually, this is actually the fiction of me. In a letter to the Marquis of Newcastle, Descartes likened the behavior of birds and monkeys to clocks. They're behaviour is unreflective, it's automatic, and he distinguishes, distinguishes them from human beings on the grounds that only humans can think. And then in the discourse on method, he says it would be impossible to distinguish a mechanical monkey from a real one, whereas it would be possible to tell a real person from a mechanical copy because humans have souls and possess the ability to reason. So there's something, for Descartes anyway, there's something irreducible about humans, something God-given, of course, for him. And that makes humans fundamentally different to animals and automata. And what's interesting about Donna Haraway, I think about this quote probably too often. Uh, she said she would rather be a cyborg than a goddess, which is quite a famous sentence. And she says that the cyborg is an entity that offers a way out of the maze of dualisms in which we have explained our bodies to ourselves. And of course, what she's doing is trying to take things in a very, very different direction. She wants to shift the way we think about what the boundaries of human and animal uh, and machine really are. I mean, there's lots of people walking around with artificial hips and pacemakers and stuff like that. That's that's going, or, or even I think pig's hearts are sometimes used in, 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 in that kind of surgery. So there's all kinds of things that are changing what we are. So that's, that's, that's one thing for us to think about. Think about AI, think about what it means for our conceptions of personhood. A really good colleague of mine, Graham Harvey, wrote a lot about animism and personhood and into sort of non-humans. Um, he's, he's very into Latour, so he's very much into the non-human and the, the human and the animal. I think AI raises some, some similar sort of questions and areas like that. But then there's also this question about biases. So technology is not neutral, right? For a start, the current AI that we see is probably based on algorithms written 20 to 30 years ago, right? And those algorithms are going to be saturated in biases of one kind or another, race bias, gender bias, ableist bias, right? I suppose the key, the, the, the take home is that, you know, this technology isn't a way out of bias in the same way that the market isn't a way out of the fallibility of, of, of humans making judgments about value and harms and so on and so forth. So one of the things that's been emerging is the need to regulate AI. And the EU is taking steps in that 
direction, some quite interesting steps in in this direction. So, for example, in the regulation framework they're proposing, real-time biometric data collection in public space would be banned, which I think is probably quite a good step. But of course, AI doesn't recognize borders of sovereign states or economic and uh, political blocks like the EU, right? So we need global regulation. It can't just be, it can't just, it's not going to work in one area. I think whether China, the US and the EU and African leaders are going to sit down together and hammer out a common framework given what we what we know about some of the systems, for example, extant in, in, in China, I think it's uh, unlikely, which seem more like black mirror than reality, but there you go. But I also think, you know, another another way of, of trying to think about these problems is, is looking at how um, some of the possibilities AI might have. So I found at least one initiative called Indigenous AI, uh, and you can just Google that and and, and look at their blog posts, uh, the research projects that they're engaged in. And I think it's got some exciting possibilities. Um, I've got a colleague at the o- Open University, uh, Saeed Mustafa Ali, who's written about these kinds of technologies and the sort of unbearable whiteness of being and, and that kind of stuff. And he's quite critical uh, of this idea of indigenous AI, but I want to be optimistic about the kinds of possibilities that it opens out. And what, what, this is just one possibility. So for example, uh, a lot of indigenous languages are, are, are in danger of, of being lost for, for different reasons. Sometimes it's population density, so could be other reasons. AI is an opportunity to save those languages, um, help preserve those languages, keep them alive. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is AI poses us quite a lot of questions. It poses questions about who we are. It poses questions about bias, race bias being significant one, given there's quite a strong literature out there on essentially uh, the embedded sort of racial bias of of of, poli- of the way these algor- of, of AI algorithms used in policing and uh, and so uh, and that kind of thing, but at the same time there are also possibilities for AI being decoupled perhaps from uh, those big kinds of institutions and structures and put to work at more at different scales by local groups to advance their own projects uh, and mobilize their own agendas. So that's 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 all I've got to say on, uh, on, on AI. Once again, I'll stress that when you type questions into chat GTP, it's a pretty effective tool, yeah. shockingly so. It has, it has real limit um, because it makes a lot of stuff up. So like yeah. I went in and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do this with my students who I know some of them use chat GPT on the first day of class or second day of first week, right? I'm going to put up on the board chat GPT and ask it, huh, um, what are the titles of the books that Craig Martin wrote? Cause I did this and the, uh, it gave me like five or six and the first two were correct. And the others were just completely fabricated out of thin air. Like and I, I want to show the students, like, this is what you're trusting. <laughs> That, that that sort of they call it hallucination, don't they? This sort of documented stuff of of, of ChatGPT making stuff up. I mean, I suppose what we're trying to do in a, in our sort of assessment strategy is is trying to find ways to uh, students are going to use it, right? So banning it is um, pointless. 
um, or, or trying to ban it is pointless. So trying to encourage considered engagement with it in a way that hopefully mitigates against them against cheating because it can it, it, it can generate useful thinking points or talking points that could be useful in the classroom. I, I recently had a long conversation about AI with some computer science professors at my school. And we talked a little bit about the possibility of AI units having moral standing, which doesn't necessarily relate to religion at all, but right, it, it touches on some of those questions of value that, that you said are raised by the, the possibility of real AI. And, and they seem to very easily imagine a time where AI got really, really sophisticated was self-aware, was extremely smart, could make decisions and have desires. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know about that last one. Cause how, how can a computer have desires? Cause like this laptop in front of me, I assume that none of you would think that I am murdering somebody if I took a stake and slammed it through the laptop. Nobody gives the laptop moral standing, even if it had an AI unit in it and that it was running, that's still not murder. At what point, and, and that's because it doesn't have desires, right? My cat has desires. That's why there are laws that say I can't kick it for fun, right? Because I'm harming something. For me to harm something, it has to have desires that I'm thwarting or the possibility of experiencing pain, which I'm causing. And it and it seems clear, and people will call me speciesist, but this, I, I can't imagine any other way. Biological organisms appear to have desires because they have biology. Like we have desires because we have things like stomachs that tell us, hey, you need to put something in us or we're going to starve to death. Or we have brains that can experience pain, right? I'm a vegetarian, but I'll eat clams because clams don't have brains. There's no brain there to process or have conscious experience of suffering or pain because it doesn't have a brain to have a brain sorry to suffer seems to mean you have to have some kind of a brain and i don't know how a piece of computer code could have desires like biological organisms have desires and when i push them i push them and push them and push them and they're like oh yeah ai will have desires i'm exaggerating but they're very confident that 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 it's going in that direction and and i don't see how that's possible i don't i can't imagine my computer no matter how how i rigged it up or what i fed it or how sophisticated it was or how much memory it had i can't imagine it developing desires like my cat has i mean i can't either but i'm always as polite as i can be to chat gpt just in case <laughs> <laughs> but it's but but what i really in, all, in more seriously uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, james lovelock's uh, last book nova scene uh, is about basically the universe becoming conscious of itself through human beings being replaced by intelligent machines that then go on and and then th this trope is everywhere. That also it, sounds like Hegel. <laughs> well, it, it kind of does, yeah. But it's kind of it's it's a it's a theology, isn't it? Um, um, and it's you know in Ray Kurzweil and the singularity, and that whole transhumanist gig. It's that's what it's all about, and. Uh, yeah, we can modify ourselves. We can overcome the limits of aging, of of, of intelligence, of, of of 
you name it, they've got a solution. But of course, fundamental question that you've just asked about desire is, is how's, I guess that's just a black box question, right? To be clear, I'm not saying that AI units could not develop desires. I'm just saying that at present, we don't think they have desires. If they do, eventually they have to cross some line. And I'm asking, what would that line look like? And I can't mm. imagine what that line would look like. And maybe people smarter than me have better answers. Maybe if we had cyborgs, if we attach stomachs to AI units, maybe they would have desires. I mean, that's a really, truly disturbing thought, Greg. <laughs> 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 Maybe just leave it to the computer science folks. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm looking at the time and I see that we are coming up on an hour. So I will say I think that this is probably a great place to wrap up. This has been a very interesting conversation. Thanks to both of you, Craig Martin and Paul Francois Tremlett for joining us here today for the final episode of season 12. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. And thanks, of course, and most importantly, to our listeners for tuning in today. It's you who make all of this possible. So thank you so much for your continued support. We will be back in September. We have several big announcements coming, some stuff that's in the works and some other exciting things happening here at the RSP. So be sure to join us back in September once we kick off season 13. We won't give away any spoilers yet, so you'll just have to tune in in September to find out what's happening. That's all I can say. So that about wraps it up here for us for this season and for this episode, of course. So until September, all that's left to say is, Thanks for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organization, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk, and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.